Hello and welcome to this, the first episode in a brand new second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 20-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And for this second series, we are coming to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. And as ever, we are bringing this to you absolutely free of charge. We decided way back in the day that we would never, ever charge for these podcasts. But each week, we would ask you to put your money where your mouth is and to support Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And what did we always say all those years ago was the best way to support Irish theatre? Quite simply, by putting your hand in your pocket and buying a theatre ticket. The simplest, the most direct and the most effective way to keep this magical machine of Irish theatre ticket over. Go and buy yourself some tickets, either to one of the big houses, to one of the smaller, more fringe theatres. Or, you know what, if ticket prices are slightly beyond you this week or this month, maybe go on over to one of the crowdsourcing websites, the likes of a Fundit or a GoFundMe or whatever, and see if there's a theatre project over there that you can support. And of course, there are many ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. One of the most direct ways is to tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or a pint, whether it's by sharing the link as a Facebook post or maybe retweeting it on Twitter. Uh, Another great help for us is if you go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes and go back and listen to our other older episodes back from uh, series one. There's 52 magical ones there for your enjoyment and your delight. Um, Leaving us a review on iTunes uh, is massively helpful, but even if just simply clicking to rate us on their five-star rating, system. It's a one-click deal. It doesn't take an awful lot and it's of massive benefit to us. Um, you can go and follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland and how very strange it feels to be giving that opening speech once again all these years later. Five years to the day since I killed off this podcast or drove a stake through its heart and attempted to kill it before it killed me. Six years since we started off this crazy madcap notion of a project to try and create this archive or time capsule or snapshot of a year in the life of Irish theatre and it's so strange to think how much has happened in that five or six years since I mean if you think when we did this original podcast the only other thing Rise had ever produced was Fight Night Um, you know back then there was no games people play there was no At The Ford there was no Cobra's Quest Christy Hennessy show there was no The Good Father Um, Rise still hadn't won an Irish Times award we'd been touring We've been touring internationally and stuff. We were still so much at the very, very beginning of our journey and our progression and everything that's happened in these last few years. And also, I guess the whole ecosystem and landscape of Irish theatre was a very, very different place. We were still deep in the middle of all the arts cuts around the recession. Not that there's been a huge amount restored there. Um, But the landscape was very different. Five years ago, when we finished off this podcast, Michael Colgan was still running the gate. Fiat 
McNeil was still running the Abbey and had just programmed four female playwrights back-to-back across both stages. Jimmy Fay wasn't running the Lyric in Belfast. Judy Kelleher wasn't running the Everyman in Cork. The whole system was entirely different. And so it kind of feels right and appropriate that we, we come back to it now and revisit what this was then and what it can be now because the other thing is there's a whole new generation of theatre artists out there that simply weren't around five years ago the ones that have come out since and have been blazing a trail and making a name for themselves and so I'm really excited uh, about giving voice to that new generation and also finding an awful lot of the people that we just didn't get to last time around. I mean, I said as I closed off on the final show all those years ago that there were a huge amount of names that we just didn't get to. 52 personalities from the Irish theatre scene was never going to be exhaustive. It was going to be fairly comprehensive, but it was never going to catch everybody. And so now it's a chance for me to go back and find a lot of those people that I didn't get along the way and find all the new people that I've had the chance to work with over the last five or six years uh, or that I've just got a chance to meet and become friends with and it's it's a really exciting time for me and it's an exciting time generally for Rise Productions I mean we're in the middle of our nationwide tour of The Good Father right now Christian O'Reilly's exceptional play which thankfully is going incredibly well for us the response has been phenomenal we're just about to finish up in the Viking in Clontarf for this initial kind of three week run before we head out around the country and it's been sold out every night standing ovations every night the critical response has been phenomenal more stars than you could shake a stick at and and really a, a nice response and the kind of the rewarding thing for me is technically it's my directing debut for Rise I mean I know I've directed quite a bit with Rise over the years but it's always been in smaller scale productions or audio stuff but this is the first big show start to finish with a beginning middle and end and an interval in the middle and you know so it feels it feels like kind of a coming of age for me uh, and thankfully it's been going incredibly well we're about to take it all around the country Um, and so we hope that those of you outside Dublin will get a chance to come and join us as we take it on the road and also it's the first time for us that we're not doing new writing. Obviously, The Good Father was a pre-existing text, one that I saw the original production of from Druid 15 years ago um, that Gary Hines directed, starring the brilliant Aidan Kelly and Dervla Crotty. And I remember seeing it in the project and falling in love with it, Um, not least because the play is just an exceptional piece that deals with themes that are very close to my heart in terms of fatherhood and, you know, how do you define yourself as a man in the 21st century? Um, But also, and much more importantly, because it's set on Port Marnock Beach. And as I may have mentioned in the past, I'm a very proud Port Marnock man. So I've been waiting 15 years to get my hands on this play and it is massively rewarding now that having got my hands on it, that we've pulled off the production that we have with what has to be said, an exceptional cast in Rachel O'Byrne, who's now at this stage uh, a Rise Productions regular, and the the brilliant Liam Heslin. Um, They are a phenomenal double act, and we're having a really great time with it. So it's nice to be on the road with that. We hope you'll join us along the way. Uh, It's uh, it's been a pretty special show so far, and uh, I hope you get to join us. But as ever, let's not have me rabbit on too much. Let's come to this week's guest. So this week's guest is someone who I first met when she was still in drama school and just before she graduated back in 2013. She was part of that kind of special class that came out of the gaiety that year that featured Ian Toner and Rex Ryan and Kayleigh McCann and a whole host of other incredible actors. And I was instantly blown away by her. There's no other way around it. Um, And uh, it is, of course, the great Kate Gilmore, who at this stage, terrifyingly kind of only four years into her career 
his already multiple-time nominee as an actress for the Irish Times Awards. Uh, she's a winner of an Irish Times Award for acting. She's won numerous awards for her writing as well. And in that short four years has really established herself as one of the leading lights of her generation. Um, I've been massively impressed with her ethos, her work ethic, her sheer talent as well, it has to be said. I mean, she's just that good. Um, I've supported her career and followed her career over those four years. We've had the chance to work with her here a couple of times with Rise, both on the uh, the short audio dramas and more recently on Cobra's Quest that we made for the Fringe Festival just gone. And, and I think she's pretty much as good as it gets. Um, it's a great chat. It's honest. Um, being dead straight, I think it's up there as arguably one of the best podcast episodes we've ever made. So it's, it's starting series two with a bang. So look, let's get straight into it. Here it is. The fantastic Kate Gilmore. <laughs> The wonderful Kate Gilmore. Here we are, episode one, series two. You aren't that important. How are you getting on in your life? I'm really good. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks very much. Do you feel special being number one? I do feel special. That's why I asked you before we started who was number one. <laughs> <laughs> and you are always going to be number one. You are the Peter Daly of series two, which is quite oh, an achievement. Wow. <laughs> life. Um, right, okay. Let us start as we did 52 times before. Um, tell me why, how, when, what was the start? Okay, uh, I guess it all started because I was an only child, okay. um, which I think is the incentive for a lot of parents to put their children into the arts or something that's going to integrate them into society so that they realise how to blend with other people. Um, and my mum and dad put me into a tap class, I remember, which is where I get my complex from towards dancing. You got a complex for dancing? I do. My okay. dad uh, looked in the window at me. This I've told this story before and I'll tell it again. Uh, he looked in the window at me doing my tap class and he, when, I, he, when I came out afterwards he said, Christ, you have no rhythm at all, do you? <laughs> so I start with that disclaimer anytime I'm working with Myrna Bloomer or Darren Crosby or anyone who dances or choreographs because uh, I think I can't dance. You're a daily dancer. They continuously um, encourage me that I'm okay, I'm fine. Your dad lies like a cheap watch. That's but terrible. Then, <laughs> but then, um, so I'd done that. And uh, then I kind of showed an interest in acting uh, because I really liked obscure actresses for, a, for such a young age. I, I loved Whoopi Goldberg, Susan Sarandon, um, Holly Hunter. I had obsessions with these actresses at like five, six, seven, eight. It was so bizarre. And all my friends liked Spice Girls. And it was just, it didn't, it didn't, it was so weird. Um, so my mum and dad were like, maybe we should put her into an acting class because they were ne- never ones to force you into anything or be like pushy parents but I showed an interest enough so they put me into the Gaiety School of Acting when I was about 13 and I'd done some Saturday classes then I'd done the youth theatre company and then I was in secondary school and I was doing it all the way through secondary school and there just wasn't really ever another path that was on the horizon for me yeah. um, naively maybe <laughs> um, and so then when the decision comes and you're hitting leaving start time and CAO time, did you just go, right, that's it, the game has been good so far, let's roll the dice on it? Yeah, well, I applied, but it wasn't on the CAO because yeah. it's not a um, it's not a college. Yeah. It's not a university or a college. It's just... Uh, so I did apply for the Lear, which was the very first year of it. Oh, OK. And I applied for Trinity and I applied for DIT. I didn't apply in the UK because I, I wasn't aware enough of the system to know when to apply. I think I'd missed dates and stuff because I was 18 and I was an idiot. Um, 
but I I done well. I I didn't get into the Lear, <clears throat> but I did get into uh, Trinity and DIT and the Gaiety, and I had a really uh, mad audition for the Gaiety in which I puked into a plant pot, and I thought that was a. Uh, so you acted puking into a plant pot? No, or I, I did. Sh- I, I I was very sick from my callback for the Gaiety. So amazing. So I uh, puked into a plant pot with Patrick Sutton beside me, calling my mum. <laughs> Uh, it it was mad. So I thought that that was like a, a sign that I should choose the gaiety. I also liked the fact that it was quite a practical course. You were on your feet all day. Um, I was restless and I was young and that appealed to me. And so had you been talking about going to do the, the real drama degree in Trinity then? I've been, yeah, because the, the, the Lear had separated from Trinity yeah. at that point. So it was quite academic, the course. Yeah. My friends who've done it and they don't regret it at all, but it's, it is a very different course. It's to, different and it's beast, a different yeah. path to the one I've taken. So... Um, yeah, that's interesting because there's I know there's a, there's a little mini generation kind of a good bit after me and before you that went, that time when the when the old Trinity course disappeared before the Lear happened. Yeah, so a lot of people went in and did that four year big yeah. posh degree in drama, yeah. which is like eight million points and all that kind of stuff. And it's, yes, it's all that's a bit the, crazy. That's the yeah, that's the course. Man, yeah, how different things might have been. I know. So, <laughs> so you then get the gaiety, and what was the training experience like? I loved it. I, I was very as I said, young, I was so young and naive and uh, I, I hadn't been to a lot of theatre, I hadn't read a lot of plays, I hadn't read a lot of books, but there was like a, an instinct in me, which I don't think you can teach, so uh, I, I followed that, my gut with that, and I learned so much from my class because half of it was split into people who just finished their leaving and people who'd done degrees either in English, drama or otherwise who knew a lot more than the younger people did, but then they learn kind of recklessness and irreverence from the younger people, and we learn, into, like, we learn intellect from them and their when wisdom and knowledge. So uh, I learned mo- as much from my classmates as I did from the tutors. Um, but the the classes themselves were... Um, there was amazing diversity in them. There was mime with Sharon, and she's like the most incredible mime artist and Diane Richardson does rhythm and tap and dance and Maureen White does uh, acting and she's just incredible like she goes through um, beat by beat when you don't even know what beats are when you're starting and it's a really um, the uh, yeah I can't, invaluable it's invaluable that's the word wow Kate read a book <laughs> yeah. um, were you aware at the time that your gang in there was as solid a gang as it was. This happens periodically with mm. drama schools, that you get this vintage year that comes through. And ironically enough, it happened with that first year at the Lear. It happened yes. with my go in Trinity. Yes. And it seems to have happened with your gang in the gate. Like, you had a ludicrously strong class. Yeah, yeah. We, I don't think we were aware um, that we were particularly strong or, or well-matched or anything like that because we didn't... We had, we'd seen the showcases of the year ahead of us, but beyond that, we didn't know very much about the previous years except for the stars, which were like Charlie Murphy, Ian Lloyd Anderson, Sarah Green, Mo Dunford, etc. Yeah. So we thought, well, the success rate's very high anyway. And then oh, Carl yeah, Shields yeah. came in and done a career talk, and he said that in 10 years, 10% of us will be working, which is accurate, but... You know, you don't believe that when all 20 of you seem to have the same ambition going into We're all going straight to Hollywood, man. Yeah, we're all going to do films. Uh, so we weren't really, until afterwards, I suppose, and then, and, and, and it's time has proved since that a lot of us 
so many of us are still working and in all different path we're all taking different pathways to to uh, achieve our goals and things and um, but none, none of us well of course there are a couple but out of the core group none of us have really stopped or taken yeah. no for an answer and if we haven't gotten one gotten it one way we've gone a different way and come back around and it's such success and that's the us. thing that really interests me again about it feels like you guys were at the front of that generation and, and everyone who's come since in the last few years points yeah. back to essentially the, the Kate Gilmore's of the world and goes right okay because obviously so I left drama school early 2000s pre-Celtic Tiger everyone has loads of money loads of theatre companies just go and work it was all fine yeah but you guys came out, what, 2013 you graduated? Yeah. So right in the middle of the huge cuts, there just wasn't the same amount of work. Yeah. And so there was that thing, it seemed to me, from the outside of a generation of people went, right, if the opportunities aren't there, I'm just going to go and make them. So, you know, the Ian Toners of the world start writing, the Kate Gilmore's of the world start yeah. writing, the Rex Ryan's of the world start producing. Yeah. Um, Katie McCann starts producing yeah. and writing her own stuff. Yeah. And it was this thing of, like, by hook or by crook, we will just go and make this happen. We have stories to tell and we want to do it. And what interests me about that is it felt to me that it was a shift in the old-style drama school training for just going out and being a freelance gun for hire as an actor. Yeah. Whereas you guys all felt like you were theatre artists with a voice and I wonder how much of that comes back to the manifesto strand in yeah. the Daily. Oh, so so much of it. I would never have imagined myself as a theatre maker before starting Manifesto with John Delaney. Uh, he encouraged us that we not only have a, a, a vessel for other people's stories, we have our own voices and they're as valid as top companies and writers that we've been looking to for all our careers and all our lives so we were always and and as well then it came back to like not only should we bask in our own voices and and create more we should like then then there was carol telling us you know realistically you're not going to be getting a call all of you when you finish here so if you want to work make your own work and then so we had manifesto to do that with and I did. Most of us didn't even wait. We were straight into making our own thing. We we didn't even wait around for a year or two. Within two months, we had our show in theatre upstairs. And then, fast forward a year later, we I had I had been involved in the making of two other shows in theatre upstairs, uh, with the help of Carl Shields, Laura Honan, um, who are like, I don't know where half of us, if not more, would be without them and that theatre, and. But yeah, and, and then it's like that thing, you know, work creates work. The more you do, the more you get. So it just kind of kickstart coming then. Yeah, I, and I think that's interesting, particularly about you, at the risk of telling you how deadly I think you are, but I've mentioned it a few times. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I, think, I think you're right that I think you had the talent to get there, but without getting up off your arse and making it happen, you wouldn't have had the shop window to show people that you had that talent. And so that's why I think it was key um, that you got out there and made it happen. So for you as writer and creator of work, was that like a really clinical decision of I want to showcase myself as an actor so I'm going to make this happen or do you have this innate need inside you as a storyteller to get these works out there? It, it's, uh, it's, it's mad because I, ca- I can't remember what the first instinct was to make. Uh, I think it was being in that class in Manifesto and having something that went down well with the class that I realised I had 
passion for that wasn't going outside of the class so was never going to do anything for me but I wanted to still uh, expand on that idea that made me go oh maybe there there's there's other things I want to do besides being a play Uh, I want to make work that's as satisfying and integral to my path as as just acting is and yeah there's that part of you that goes of course when you're writing you want to showcase like I don't show in a bag and you know you want to go well I love singing and I, I love music and I want to put all that into it but the story at the core is the most important and even if that was to be packaged in a in a little book and sent to someone else to do I would be as happy as I would performing it myself whereas I, I think if you're just making it for yourself then it's, it's there's no life beyond you yeah because it's because you've done both I mean I think in terms of that early work things like the the musical with yeah. Lawrence a picture of us yeah a sort of musical yeah uh, brackets um but then also writing um Stella as well yeah um that so how different were those experiences and how different was the process in generating that work in terms of how you made the musical and then how you made um, the other show? Making the musical with Lawrence, there was about probably a year of faffing about before we made that. And then even when we did, we probably made it in about three weeks because it was, you can't really sit down, well, I can't just sit down and make myself write something. You have to kind of catch the ideas out of the air when they come to you. And we had a general feeling and atmosphere that we wanted to create we'd a kind of we did we knew about our own talents and what we could do together and then we put a date into theater upstairs and started making something that ended up being the musical and then with Stella I had for the past year and a half I'd only really bar breathless done my own thing oh, writing yeah. Uh, so I was used to it then and I just started writing something one day like that I caught that idea and I started writing it and I was living with Claudia Mooney Duggan at the time and I thought this isn't my voice this is hers so I I continued with that and it was an incredible experience because I remember sitting watching the last performance and like crying because it was something that I felt I made for her and she had then presented for me and and we had that bond in it and then other people were allowed into our world that we created together and Sarah Finlay as the director had created and Ashley as the designer and all just all those women together made this world and people came and paid to watch it and that was unbelievable it was fascinating that that happened that we could just we had the right to do that like do I have a right to be doing this is the question I yeah. ask myself every morning <laughs> And that, the answer varies. Yeah. But that was a time when I was like, I, yeah, we do. And so was that process, in the way that the musical came together, that was more devised, yeah. was it? Whereas yeah, yeah. Stella was more sitting down yeah. at a laptop yes. and tapping and typing away. Yeah. Have you a preference for either method of generating work? D- devising work uh, sounds great in theory, I think. <laughs> but sometimes when you're in a room for hours and hours on end, uh, it can get messy and uh, without one voice it can be difficult Um, and it can be great at the start for workshopping ideas and then I think someone needs to take the bull by the horns and sit down at a computer eventually and write it because otherwise what what's what is who's like where's the where's the true voice you know well then talk talk to me a bit about control 
of your work when do you feel most in control do you feel most contro- most in control when you're an actor on stage either with your own words or someone else's words do you feel most in control when you when you get the, you can decide type it all out on a page and decide and shape the whole thing completely what's which which yeah which feels which feels most secure for you maybe probably when i'm in a job and uh, i'm just acting because when you don't have to worry about where your shoes are coming from you're like it's just it's it's such a, an amazing thing to go into and someone gives you underwear to wear on stage like because it's a period piece and you're going like five months ago I was rummaging through charity shops to find costumes for a character that I'd written for a play that I was getting no money for and now someone's given me like earrings because she would wear these in 1970 what yeah. it's the the, the the gap between the two is, is insane. And I do feel, I have to say, most comfortable and in control when I'm in a piece of work like that because it's not my... It's not... Um, it's, I don't know. I guess I, I st- it's that thing that comes down to have I any right to be doing this? And when someone gives you the job, you think, yes. There's a vote of confidence there. Yeah, there's a vote of confidence. Uh, and is it is it a more direct focus then that you're not worried about are we getting bums on seats? Have I got enough... Yeah, you're you not know, worried about selling it yeah. or plugging it online or any of that. Yeah, that's because um, you feel like a job. It's a job then, yeah. instead of a vocation or something that you do when you're not working your part-time job. Yeah. It feels like this is what I've trained for to come in at six and do this for four hours and then leave, and it, it starts to feel like a routine. And that that's the best feeling in the world because. You know, when you're passing people on the street, they're probably going to an office and that might be what they want to do. But how lucky are you? I passed a teacher, an old teacher from secondary school on the way to the gate one morning for rehearsals. And she was a religion teacher and she asked me what I was doing and I said I was acting. And she said, where are you going? And I said, in here. And she said, do you get paid for that? And I said, yeah, I do. I'm going in here now for the rest of the day to play for money. Thanks. It's not a bad way to try to live it, eh? It really isn't. Um, if you can get it. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the early successes. Because a lot of people, you know that thing like 10,000 hours to perfect your craft and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. You seem to have hit the deck running more so than most. Like I have recollections of our London showcase after drama school and yeah. Ruth Negga literally being grabbed by the scruff of the neck, put in a taxi and sent up the road to an audition. And it, it, it came that quickly for her. Yeah. And she was ready for it. Like, so, you know, talking about you know, the musical, I bought tickets for that four times yeah. to see because it, it was that good. Um, and then with Stella, Stella was like, you won an award for Stella straight out the gate. Like, you know, the idea that you were getting that much success that early on, um, both uh, like when you became an award-winning writer and then also an award-winning actress <laughs> that quickly. What does that do? Does that send you into full diva mode and go, well, I'm the greatest of all time? Or is it just... Again, is it that nice additional validation going, this is a crazy career choice, but at least I'm pulling it off so far? I guess it's, it's up to each individual. For, um, for me, the more that I work, the more there is to lose by not getting the next job. So my anxieties are higher now than they were when I was 21. And it, there feels to be more at stake because so many people have put their faith in me mm-hmm. and if I don't if I fall off the face of the earth it'll be remember that girl who done those things where's she mm-hmm. if I don't keep working or get or, or uh, getting better or trying or creating um, I feel like I've 
I've lost the faith of people like Liz Nugent and who really and you and and Carl and and Laura and people like who when I just graduated and the class just graduated really took time and effort to encourage us Um, yeah and then I I guess it was it's strange you think like with something when I won the Irish Times Award, I thought like no. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say no, that. I really, you really asked you, I know me. I did, but I really wanted you to say that sentence. Oh. It makes me so happy. Right, how old were you when you were first nominated for an Irish Times Award as an actress? I was twenty and I And how old were you when you won won the one then? I was twenty one. That's fucking ludicrous. And it's deadly. But, but it was all, just because the nominations came out in February and I won it in when I was twenty one. Man, that's so deadly. Go on anyway. So when you won your but, Irish yeah. Times Award? Yeah, um, yeah, uh, it, it, like, I thought, I don't know what I thought, I guess I, I just thought, grand now, this is, this is grand now, because this means that I'll never worry again, which is not the case at all, like, there is no guarantee, ever, you could have five of them, there's no guarantee, you, like, you could do a, a film and there's no guarantee. There's never, ever a guarantee. And that's what it taught me, which is not the most amazing realisation in the world, but it's, it's, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, look, I've, I've been very vocal about my scepticism, better words. I've been vocal about that scepticism yeah. when I've been nominated, when I've lost, when yeah. I've won, when I've hosted the fucking yeah. awards. Um, yeah, calling them out from the stage was an interesting choice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, look, it's, I think they're useful as... I mean, they're useful as a marketing tool, apart from anything else, but they're useful as a marker. And I think it felt to me, my sense around you at the time was, because obviously I had been a fan early on, because I encountered you when you were still in drama school, but it felt to me that it, what it seemed to be was a proper welcoming into the tribe yeah. for you. It felt to me very clearly that you were one of us. And I really, I enjoyed that because I, because like you can smell it from people. Like there are people who are one of us and there's people who aren't. And I knew it from you the first time I met you. And I was really glad that there was that wider recognition of that, I think, um, which I think was really useful. So then talking about some of the work since I want to talk specifically talk about maybe music for a minute because yeah. so much of what you've done has centered around music, both from making your own musical through to things like The Dead and The Train and and Town is Dead as well. Yeah. So how important is music to you and why do you enjoy working through that medium in theatre? I've loved music all my life. Uh, I guess, again, like when I started The Gaiety, I... The only, uh, the only way that I saw acting was through TV and film. So when I started, I thought, that's what I wanted to do. And I know that it's, it's kind of all one, but it's not really. Because when I left, I was very clear that theatre where, is where my heart lies. That's where, that's where I want to work. That's where I feel most creative and most comfortable and yet most uncomfortable. Um, and then again with music, I loved music all my life. And then when I was introduced to musical theatre was when I went, oh, this is where, what I love. Like it's a, a, an opening door. I, I love musical theatre. I Music in theatre, the whole thing. Uh, it, music just has a way of of making people feel something that words alone can't. 
and making the you know when someone sings or, or music starts and hair goes up hairs go up in your arms that sort of thing it's it's almost like tangible you can catch it and you, you can feel it in a room when, when the music starts and it can change the whole atmosphere of a piece just the transitional music even between scenes I, 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 lo- I love it um, and it, yeah it's, 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 it makes me really happy so I didn't intend to leave and do loads of musical theatre it just I think like that you, you, you uh, bring towards you what you put out yeah so my projection was I love theatre I love musical theatre and that's what came towards me for for a long time and uh, it's been incredible like being involved in the train was on so many levels like such an incredible experience because of the story behind it the people working on it and that it was so many of our debuts into professional theatre and or um, the, uh, the the Dublin Theatre Festival and then the Abbey. It was our, it was a lot of our debuts, so it was a special experience for so many people, which made it all the more special for everyone involved, um, and the group of people as well. Like the, you know, when you're working with a group of people and you just it clicks like that, uh, it's it's very special. Um, and similarly with the Dead and Town is Dead, just they felt like monumental moments for me anyway, being in them. Um, yeah, and I don't think... Well, the train couldn't be the same without music because it's predominantly music, but I don't think I, any of them could, or I don't think the musical, the picture, picture of us we could have done without the music. It, it, drove, it drove our ideas forward and brought home the point, and that's what it, it always does, music. So talk to me a little bit about acting for camera then, because having gone in... Like with that being your thing, yeah. To then have the one eighty flip through yeah. the two years in the gate to go actually no theatre is, is is for me now. You've done quite a bit of screen stuff since, um, across like from movies and stuff, and then the striking out stuff, and now um, a bit of soap with Fair City as well. Yeah. Like, how do you feel they're similar? How do you feel they're different? Um. I done Bow Street. I, I went to Bow Street after I went to the Gaiety because I think the Gaiety t- trains you in theatre primarily and uh, I knew that, well, if I was to make money, I'd have to try and get work in film or TV and uh, also that I didn't know what I was doing. So um, i done their part-time course and they have incredible tapes by Jerry Grinnell who has these amazing tips and points that you kind of don't really... They're not something that you can put into practice, but they sink into the back of your mind and they work in the long term. I, I can't really explain unless you sit through the tapes yourself, but they... Um, being in Bow Street, it, it, even, even to just film yourself and watch yourself back on a big screen, you then go, it's too big, or these are my habits, or that's untrue. That's untruthful. Yeah. Um, and then we had Kathy Brady come in and she got us to do this dance exercise and uh, moved to music and I got up and, and done it and she was like, yeah, but you're performing. I, I, I can see it has affected you and then you've put a, a gauze up and put something on top of that because you feel you need to reach the back of the room and you don't. And I, that was like, I, I went, oh my God. So she's saying that I, I, I have the feelings... 
but I also feel that I need to project them rather than internalise them, which I think you have to do for camera. And also, there was an amazing they, um, quote in one of the tapes that said, because I think the fear is as well that you, you, the camera doesn't love you or you don't look good on camera, or you're not good looking enough for camera. But then there was a quote in one of the tapes that, and it said, uh, people always say that the camera doesn't love them, but the camera loves ev- everyone who tells the truth. And I thought that was like, wow, because it's so true. I love the actresses I love watching, Olivia Colman, Frances McDormand. These are actresses that you would pass in the street without going, whoa, oh my God, look at her. But when you watch them on camera, you're going, whoa, oh my God, look at her. Because it's, it's mind-blowing and they're so attractive because of that. And they're the actresses whose career paths I want to follow. So I suppose just by taking the bull by the horns and being truthful and not worrying about what angle it's at or where your hair is and all that sort of thing, by doing that actually makes it... I, I, thought, I think people think it's that camera work is or film work is elitist because of that, that they're not good-looking enough and it's all about that or it's all about nepotism or whatever. But it's actually not. I think if you, if you really are telling the truth, then you're... Achieving something, and that'll be recognised. Is it about letting the camera come in and capture it, and trust that the camera will get it, rather than feeling like you say you have to project it every yeah, back wall? Yeah, exactly. It's thinking in, like, li- just listening, which is, you do anyway. But then you make choices on stage. You have to make choices, physical choices, not and, and, and everything. And you do that with camera as well. But they have to be. Everything has to be smaller, yeah. it, and and trust that um, your instincts are right and your reactions are right and they don't need to be uh, pushed too much um, that's what I've taken from and I still have a lot to learn in both but uh, the, between theatre and film and TV the uh, the, the disciplines uh, they're incredibly different the, I mean your routine is different the pace of it is different the, um, the stresses are not put on the same things um, yeah it's just it just feels very, very different for me. Was it an odd choice, having done your two years training, uh, having you know been winning all these awards and stuff, to then choose to go back and, and train again? Now, admittedly, in a slightly different discipline, but was that a, was that a difficult decision to make, or did you just embrace it and go, Do you know what, this is an element of my practice that I want to polish up, so let's go for it? Yeah, it was difficult because you never know what you're going to miss out on in those three months by saying yes. And actually, by the end of it, I was in rehearsals for Town is Dead, which had that been to a month previous, I wouldn't have been able to do both. Yeah. But I probably would have left the course because you have to kind of, I mean, go where the job is. Yeah. Um, but I was very determined that, that I was going to go back at some point and study film because I think it deserved that of me and, and, and that I wouldn't be entitled to think they were going to just come to me because there are people who'd been in Bow Street studying for years and in other film schools and walks of life doing it for years and I couldn't really condone myself going into an audition for film and thinking I deserve this or I should get this based just off reading a script. I think I needed to really hone in on that craft and figure out what it was and if I if I could do it if I wanted to do it if they would have me etc where did you get your work ethic from Gilmore I have no idea because I, I don't apply it in any other walk of life <laughs> it's incredible I, I have no um, real I'm very flaky I can't stick to one thing for too long I don't like doing the same thing for a long time and it's the only thing in my life that I've done for 
and I've done consistently and I've worked at hard everything else I've given up or I've moved on from or yeah it I don't know where it comes from I really don't it's the only thing I can do like genuinely if if it, if it, the work dried up tomorrow I'd have to go back to school and do so and, and and practice something else because there I couldn't pick up anything and and do it now I don't have any other skills it's interesting because it just it the more I encounter successful people, the, that thing of um, the harder I work, the luckier I get, seems to be a thing that just repeats again and again. You look at the Aaron Monahans of the world. Yeah. Um, and I have a massive admiration for it because with the amount of natural talent that you have, you could coast to an extent and do fine. But the fact that you keep driving yourself to get better and better and work harder and harder and grow it more and more, I think is really admirable. Yeah, I like to um, just whatever i mean do, do try and do a bit of everything as long as it comes under the umbrella of creation because like <laughs> uh like when i left i just didn't think that it would happen this way but i done like i i, I wrote and stuff and then uh i devised and then i done theater and a bit of like a bit of camera work and then i done the Eddie panto and now i'm doing soap and they're all such different disciplines that they, they, that's why i keep taking or doing the, the the different things because they keep it exciting and i um i love learning about new uh things and worlds of people and not staying in the same world with the same people because you never learn anything more you don't challenge yourself if you keep if you stay safe um and yeah you have to make mistakes you have to take things and hope and you have to yeah keep going i guess can we talk panto for a minute because yeah. it's my favorite thing in the world <laughs> i uh santi brings panto tickets to my house every single year <laughs> um my dad played dick whittington and dick whittington oh in, back God. in 1984 at the height of the tv stuff wow. and all i want in life is to be a panto back like i would give anything to do the gaiety panto it's my wow. favorite thing it's my favorite thing in the world hi darren crosby um, i would give anything to do it because and it comes back to my love of pro wrestling i don't know if i've ever mentioned my love of pro wrestling no, to I've, you. Never, I don't, I've never, never spoken about that but it's that thing of cheer the good guys boo the bad guys it's yeah. it's um it's theater at a real fundamental level yeah what was the crack like in making that show because it, it's ball breaking hard work oh yeah yeah it's really tough um Honestly, it's one of the most incredible experience I have experiences I have ever had, uh, and I really that was a choice that I did not know what I was doing going into it because I didn't think that I was good enough across the levels of uh, dancing, singing, and and panto acting. I didn't think I knew anything about that, or I deserved to be there again. That coming up, um, and then also was I straying away from where I wanted to be and all this sort of thing and then it ended up just being such a joyous experience and I met like the most beautiful hard-working people and I I just jumped into a pool of a new world of it of everything was so happy and the kids were so happy and people were working so hard and the dancers are just like mind-blowing and everyone was in it together and the teamwork and the spirit it was it was genuinely like just yeah like you said theater on a real fundamental level working really hard just to make just to put a smile on those kids faces particularly darren who directed and wrote it like for no other reason 
than to make audiences happy mm. at Christmas. Like, what? I'm th- that's the purest form, surely. Yeah, it's I look, I love it, and I was amazed. I mean, look, I've I've seen kind of everything you've done over the years, but that felt to me again like a big jump up and level. It's funny the Shona Bag show. Um, I felt again, haven't seen you do so much. I felt yeah. like you were fully in control of everything. It felt like all the raw talent that I'd seen over the years had been really polished up, and you were like fully in control of yourself, your skills, the room, the audience. It was fantastic. But then, even into the panto again, the the diverse set of skills because you were dancing so well, like yeah. dancing so well and matching. The, I was going to say the real dancers, but matching yeah, the professional yeah. dancers, uh, step for step, move for move, matching the singing, um, matching the acting, controlling like, you know, over a thousand crazy five-year-olds <laughs> jacked up on, you know, Pepsi and stuff. <laughs> I, it was it was incredible to watch you do it because it, it, felt, it felt like you were, again, just really in control of your craft. Um, and I just adored watching you do it. Um, you I thought it was much. phenomenal. Um, talk to me a bit about what you like tell me about what what's good acting or what how when do you know good acting when you see it or who does good acting that you like i've a, a premonition that we may be hearing the name of a prominent actress going up but go on um uh, i don't know what it is that makes a performance a big good because that's only my opinion and uh, there's nothing more um there's nothing that I relish more than having a conversation with someone who disagrees with me on something because because I think you're so much better off having a performance that divides people than having a performance that people go, it was okay, it was fine. Who? who? Like, something that you've made those choices that really make people either angry, annoyed, upset, or want to go back and see it five times. Like, the the... the, the that that's I think incredible, and I'm not not for everyone. I mean, there are some people who just everybody loves, like Beyonce, but <laughs> but that's not really that's the exception to the rule, yeah. you know. And I think if you're going to make those big choices, then you are have to be prepared that they're not people are not going to. I remember I listened to a podcast um, by the Abbey during the wake with Ashley O'Sullivan. Oh wow! I can't believe you've mentioned her name. <laughs> Who's my favourite um, Irish actress, and. She said, they had asked her what she felt, how she felt about the critical acclaim of The Wake thus far. And she said, it's just really nice for, an, for the performance to be understood. And I think that's the clincher. Like when a, when a performance and people say that wasn't good or whatever, it's not that it's not good because no one gets up there wanting to be bad. Everyone's worked really hard and it's just misunderstood. Your performance and your choices have been misunderstood by a general audience or by critics or both. Um, so I yeah, and I obviously honesty, integrity in a performance, the the usual things that you that you hear from people uh, that come up as well, obviously make a great performance. Um, experience, um, all that sort sort of stuff. Uh, I love, I've, I as I said, I, I love musical theatre. I love watching musical theatre, but I also love plays. I love like Marco Rowe and Tom Murphy and. Um, Elaine Murphy and plays about people and human nature. Um, yeah, I, I, that's what I want to do. Uh, play, just plays. You've mentioned Elaine Murphy. I can't not ask you about Little Gem. Yeah. Um, what was it like to spend your entire life really, really, really wanting to do Little Gem 
and then doing Little Jim. <laughs> it was like I can't. I only you know the way you can go back on Facebook and see it on this day four oh, yeah. years ago or whatever. And my post about four years ago was about uh, the pre- first preview of Little Gem. And I like I auditioned with that. That was my audition piece. It was uh, I, when I was auditioning. I think it was Claire McGuire, who I have to mention, who's been my mentor and like just m- one of my closest friends and one of the most intelligent and creative people I've ever met in my life. Um, she, I think she gave me the piece or or guided me in that direction. And when I uh, read it, I was like, yep, this is my audition piece for drama school. I think I was 16 or going on 17 and I went to see it and it was on in the Civic and Genevieve. Hume Beeman was in it and Nellie Conroy was in it and Anita Reeves was in it. And uh, my dad went through the phone book and rang Genevieve's agent to see if she would meet me afterwards to talk to me about the part of Amber. And she did, and she was very kind. And she told me about her process with the gaiety, because she had gone as well, and wished me luck, and um, told me tidbits about how she discovered the part, how she'd just come back from Australia, um, touring it. And uh, at, the po- at this time, it was being toured by Guna Nua, and, uh, and I auditioned with it, and I got in. And then afterwards, they were doing a production with Brida Cash and Elaine herself was directing it. And it was the two original parts for the mother and the and the grandmother, uh, which was Hilda Faye and Anita Reeves. And I was Amber. And I... I, 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 I don't know what... It's all right. I'm totally with you. Sorry. Oh, my God, it's so embarrassing. Um... Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was, felt like I came full circle. It felt like I, I had, I was doing the right thing. I was just crying because of, obviously, um, yeah, yeah, we lost Anita last year and she, um, I think I grew up kind of on that tour and, uh, all the women on the tour, including her, uh, taught me about life. At the time, I had no idea who I was. All I knew was that this was what I wanted to do. I had no idea who I was or, you know, if I was... I, I had love life problems and ridiculous things you have when you're 20 and 21. And and they were... Um, yeah, I felt like I'd, I made a really close bond and we toured it for about a year on and off. And um, I, it just was a really... I feel like it, it, it's a part of me. Uh, the show, that, I don't know how that sounds, but it, 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 I feel like it is, and uh, I feel like they, I, I fast-forwarded my maturity and emotional maturity and uh, everything, and everything, I, how I see the world now is based on um, my the, the advice from those uh, those actresses. That's fantastic. Um, I, yeah, Anita was an incredibly brilliant woman, and I yeah. love her to bits. Um you're 24. Yeah. <laughs> You've done a lot in a very short yeah. space of time. I mean, like, it's four years since graduation from the Gaiety. Yeah. Or is it? No, three yeah, years. No, no four, four, years. Four, years. four years. Four and a bit years now because um, it's November. So, talk to me about ambition. As award-winning actress and award-winning writer, Kate Gilmore, with a great TV career and uh, stage career and musical theatre career... <laughs> what's left or are you just going to retire at 27 and go yep I'm done now stick a no, fork in me no of course I'm not no uh, no. I, I hope I hope I hope that I will continue to work um, across the across theatre and film and TV because I think the two go hand in hand and it's um, I found joy in, in doing film and TV 
more recently that I didn't realise that I had in me because I thought all my uh, concentration was on theatre. And um, I really would love to play, you know, the, the usual, the national in, in London and, and um, do parts like Blanche because or, or uh, Martha and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, these are the parts for me that when I get older, that's probably the only thing I look forward to about getting older. <laughs> because there, are, there aren't parts like that now, they're, except for, like, there aren't really, you know, it, it's, it, they're few and far between those parts now, whereas when you get older, I think they're all juicy. And they're so dynamic and complicated and they're and they're tough and seeing performances by Fiona Bell and Gillian and Anderson recently just make me so excited that that's still to come or you know um yeah I just hope that uh really the the the, the hope is that I get to do this um for for uh, forever and there are a few little goals for myself along the way, but mostly just that people keep hiring me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and have you any little seeds of ideas that you don't have to tell me about um, taken away inside you at the moment for like new shows that we might see written by a little Kate Gilmore or something? Yeah, uh, I'm creating an idea at the minute with uh, with Claire Maguire, who was... Um, who was the director of The Wickedness of Oz, which was the show in a bag that I did. And she uh, she and I have this um, really cool idea that we're very, very excited about, that we're, we're sitting on because we want to, like I said, let it come and um, do the research and things so that it doesn't feel half made when it goes up. Because so often when shows don't have funding, sometimes they're, they're rushed a little bit because you think you don't have enough time because there's no money in it but um we're taking time out week by week to to expand on it and that's that's really exciting and again to um come back to making because i haven't done it since last year um is is really exciting fantastic Gilmore I'm so glad that you agreed to come on for the very first of the second series and Thank I'm glad you. that I think 20 years from now people will still be listening to this one going oh my god that's Kate Gilmore she's only 24 oh, oh my god now look what she's done so. um, you're my favourite you're brilliant Thank uh, you so much. I love watching you do your stuff and fingers crossed I get to watch you do loads more stuff thank you very much for having me and listening I hope I didn't waffle you were deadly So there you have it, the brilliant Kate Gilmore, one of my all-time favourite podcast chats. Raw, open, honest and emotional. I I don't think either myself or Kate knew that the conversation was going to go that way when we started talking about the brilliant Anita Reeves. Uh, And I spoke to Kate afterwards about whether we would leave that in or edit it out because... You know, it's one of those things that you don't necessarily need to be that raw, that vulnerable, that open on a on a format like this. But Kate felt it was a testament to how she genuinely felt about Anita. And I think for any of us that had the honour and the privilege and the joy of working with Anita over the years, I think that's an emotion that we would all very readily identify with. And so I'm glad we got to keep that in and share it with you guys. Anita was an incredibly special woman uh, to all of us and uh, incredibly special to Kate in particular. And I'm incredibly grateful to Kate for being that open and honest with us and, uh, and sharing her story. What a great chat. And so that brings us to our usual weekly round 
roundup of what's going on around the country. And at the moment in the board gosh, you can go and see the wonderful Miss Saigon, which is the first ever Broadway West End musical I saw. I remember flying to London and seeing it as an 11 year old kid. It left a hell of an impression and I believe this production is absolutely spectacular. Well worth checking out if you get a chance. The incomparable Rory Nolan is just about to finish up as Ross O'Carroll Kelly in Postcards from the Ledge. That's at the Gaiety Theatre. Look, Rory is a longtime friend of the show, longtime friend of mine, one of the very best actors of his generation. This is a guy doing a solo show in a character he knows inside out, holding over a thousand people in the palm of his hand every night. Get down there and check it out if you can. Tribes is just about to finish up at the gate. By all accounts, it is spectacular. As you can tell, I've seen nothing over the last while because I've been so up to my eyes with the good father, but that's okay. Um, also, uh, in Project Art Center, at uh, Project Art Center, I should say, we have this is the funeral of your life from Louise White. Um, at the Peacock Theatre, we have Fire Below featuring the fantastic Ali White. This beach is at Dreacht in Blanchardstown. Uh, then Bewley's Cafe Theatre has strutting and fretting from the brilliant Chris McCallum, one of my all-time favourite guys in the world. Um, Bat the Father, Rabbit the Son is at the New Theatre in Temple Bar. The great Donald O'Kelly there. Uh, Pulled is at Smock Alley, well worth checking out if you can get a chance. And at Theatre Upstairs, there is Sacrament. Um, Also, we have a certain show called The Good Father, currently playing at the Viking Theatre at the Sheds in Clontarf. But look, if you're listening to that this week, um, don't bother trying to come down. We're completely sold out. It ain't going to fly for you. Um, Come and catch us on the road. We are in Roscommon and Tralee this week coming, by all accounts, I think. So uh, check out Roscommon Arts Centre and check out Shiam Satira in Tralee. You can come see us on the road. And another show from Rise Productions is on the road because why have one tour when you could have two? Um, The Christy Hennessy show uh, starring the other Angus McAnally is out on the road at the moment. It is playing the Source Arts Centre in Thurles. Uh, the Rammer Theatre Virginia St Michael's and New Ross uh, the Theatre Royal in Waterford and Riverside Park in McCroom this next week do get along and see that it's a phenomenal show uh, and at the Civic Theatre, there is 100 more like these performed by the great Stephen Jones. Also worth checking out The Great Hunger, which is going to be at Smock Alley next week. And uh, and the new theatre in Temple Bar is having a new writing week next week with all kinds of exciting uh, new work there to check out. Uh, and also Project Arts Centre will have another playboy of the Western world from BC Adigan. That's going to be an interesting one. Uh, and so that concludes our little roundup. And basically, that concludes this first episode of the new podcast, which is kind of incredible. That's just so strange to be back at it. I hope you will join us over the next 52 episodes as we go. We have some incredible guests lined up for you. I think we're going to have some fun along the way uh, and I'm really looking forward to getting back into it. That's if it doesn't kill me because God knows it came very close to killing me last time around. And so that's us. That's episode one of this new series two in the books. We will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime... This has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week.